Second Chronicles 33, we are nearing the end of the books of Kings and Chronicles, where we have been studying for over a year. And we have reached a man who ruled longer than any of the 42 kings. There were 42 kings between Israel and Judah, including, of course, Saul and David and Samuel. And we have now arrived at the man named Manasseh. This man ruled for 55 years. And if you gathered up 16 of the kings who served for 10 years or shorter, he ruled as long as 16 of those kings. Manasseh's rule is very long. And it has one of the most powerful messages in the entire book. How many of you right now would raise your hand and say, I know the story of Manasseh? Or before I came to church today, I knew the story of Manasseh. If you knew the story before you came to church today, would you put your hand up? Not many. I hope you will go away today learning what might be the most powerful story in the book of Second Chronicles. This man comes from the stock of Hezekiah. Hezekiah was perhaps the best king, the most faithful, devoted king. I say perhaps because next week we're going to learn about Josiah. You need to be here to learn about Josiah next week. The man who saw revival. If you are praying with us for revival, then next week we're going to study revival. Because it's in the passage. But today we see the son of a godly man. And he was... Full of sin. Perhaps the most wicked man in the entire Bible. You can make a case to say that Judas was the most wicked man in the entire Bible. You can make a case to say the Antichrist is the most wicked man in the entire Bible. You can make a case to say that Manasseh is the most wicked man in the entire Bible. And with that as a background... I want to begin the message. Usually we have a longer introduction, but today it's very simple. I want to give you two points to the message. Manasseh's sin. Manasseh's end. S-I-N-E-N-D. Two points. Manasseh's sin is the first ten verses. Manasseh's end is the next ten. 10 verses. So if you're following your Bibles, I would encourage you to write them out. Does anyone need a pen? Mark those down. I would encourage you to mark down in your Bibles the divisions and the names as we're studying through these things. In verses 1 to 10, we will see the sin of Manasseh. And in verses 11 to 20, we will see the last few years of this bad man's life. Let's begin right away. In verse number 3, 2 Chronicles 33, verse 3. And if you have a pen, I would encourage you to number these on the side. We are going to see 14, 1, 4, 14 sins of Manasseh. I do not know of anyone in the Bible whose sins are treated at such length. Not Ahab, not Judas. The sins recorded about Ahab and Judas and Cain and Esau are very brief in the Bible. 
not Pharaoh even. Even Pharaoh's sins are not described at such length as this man's sins. So if you want to number them, we can go right down through the numbering. Number one is in verse 3. And you'll, you'll get the trick and you can, you can count these. So if you've got a pen there, put the number one right beside verse 3. He built again the high places. Now, most of my sermon will be to go through the sins of this man. But the real power of the message is in the last 10 minutes. So if you have to leave early, I strongly encourage you to listen to this today on the internet. Please make sure you don't miss the end because that's the great power of the story. But we have to take it as the Bible gives it. So let's start in verse 3. He built again the high places. That's his first sin. The high places were the mountainous areas where gods were worshipped. You see, there's something in human nature. John Calvin called it the sensus divinatus. You can hear in there, can't you? The divine sense. Sensus divinatus. The divine sense. Every man and every woman, because of the image of God, is made with this feeling of some great power outside of them. And that power is God. Everyone is made that way. And so, as uh, um, Kuniop, what's his first name? The Nigerian scholar who's written several books on theology and ethics. Kunihop, uh, Samuel Kunihop, thank you. As Samuel Kunihop writes, Africans are incurably religious. That's not quite true. He should have said all men are incurably religious. It's not as if Africans are specially religious and others aren't. I agree Africans are. We all are. Which is why all cultures, all languages, and all times have had these high places. If you climb on Rebolwa Mountain, you can find the remnants of fires made for African traditional religion, for practices and rituals made for African traditional religion. Interestingly, when I lived in Elam, my neighbor, Mr. Mahungu, who was um, um, Sipiwe's uncle, said to me, hey, let's go up on that mountain, and there up there we'll have a prayer time, and we'll spend all night, you and I. I thought, now it's very interesting. Everyone is drawn to mountains. Why? Because there's something in us that says there is something great and high. And when we go up on a mountain, we get that feeling of the highness, of the grandness that answers to our heart that should be pointing toward Jehovah. That's why the New Jerusalem is called Mount Zion in Hebrews chapter 12. That's why in Isaiah chapter 2 it says all nations will ascend up on Mount Zion. Because God knows that when men really want to seek God, their thoughts are raised upward. That's why everyone knows around the world, if I point downward, people will understand when I'm preaching or talking that I'm speaking about something having to do with death or Satan or hell. If I point upward, people instinctively know that I'm speaking some way of God or eternity or everlasting life. These high places were places that pagans had used. But Hezekiah had destroyed them all. That is, they had made these like national parks. Because every village needs to have some place to worship. And so every village, the highest place in the village, would be the high place for that area. 
Hezekiah came and would have broken down the fences. He would have marred those, those things that would have made it a nice place for pagan worship. But look in verse 3. He builds again the high places which Hezekiah, his father, had broken down. I would like to preach the whole sermon on that phrase. His father is devoted and he was wicked. Fathers, what are we doing with our sons? Hezekiah, you ruled for 29 years. You lived till you were 54. What did you do with your boy? Well, I was the king. I had to do kingly things. Why didn't you talk to your son, Hezekiah? History tells us that Hezekiah and Manasseh overlapped their rule for 10 years, which means when it says Manasseh came to power at 12 years old, probably Manasseh was the king from 12 to 22 at the same time as Hezekiah was king. Hezekiah knew, I'm about to die. My son is young. You come along and be king with me together and you'll learn. Manasseh got to watch what his father was doing. And after the funeral, Manasseh says, no, I'm done with that. I'm gun- I don't want that at all. Let's get rid of those things. He dishonors his father. But why didn't his father take note of this? Why didn't he plan for it? Hezekiah was devoted, but he lost his family. I would a thousand times rather be Noah, who lost the world, but gained his sons. Brothers and sisters, let us not lose our children. Let us not lose our children by our lack of devotion, our lack of prayer, our lack of concern for them, our lack of fasting, that they would be born again. Hezekiah lost his son. In Psalm 78, we are warned that if we do not teach our children, they will forget the works of God. Psalm 78, verses 4 to 8. I would also have you notice this. When Manasseh rebuilt the high places, he was not at that time worshiping idols. He was moving toward it. It's like a man who says, oh, I'm not getting drunk, but I'm just going to take a little alcohol. Oh, really? Let's see where you're at in a year or two years or five years. The Bible says in Romans 13, verse 14, make no provision for the flesh. Don't let, don't let the flesh even get, get a toe in the door, a finger on you. Don't let it even get you a little bit. This is why, Romans 13, 14, I encourage people not to have televisions. It is not a sin to have a television. It's going to be very easy if you have a television to make provision for the flesh. Watch out. It's dangerous. This is a a joke was told uh, of a a rich man who wanted someone to drive his carriage and horses. And he he hired different men and, and said, I want you to show me how you can drive around this corner going up a hill and a mountain. And so the road spiraled up the mountain And it went very near to the edge where you would fall over. And the first driver, attempting to show the man how well he could drive, the man stood on the road and watched the driver as he went 
up with the horses, four horses pulling the carriage as quickly as possible. And the carriage wheels slid, but didn't quite reach the edge. The second driver said, oh, I'm much better than that. And he pulled the horses at a flaming speed until the back wheel of the four, there were four wheels on the carriage, and the back wheel actually dangled over the edge before he pulled it back on and shot up the hill. And the man stood there saying, that's amazing. You are an amazing driver. And the third driver, what did he do? He went very slowly and stayed as far as he could from the edge. Who did the rich man hire? Who would you like to ride with? You see, we are all so pulled by sin that we say, well, the Bible doesn't really say I can't do that, so let me push the edge, right it to the edge. Make no provision for the flesh. Lot did that. And his family was lost, and his wife was turned to a pillar of salt. How many more men and women down through history have said, Well, I'm not yet sinning. I'm not quite. Go over the edge. Some time ago in Elam, a young man grew up in our church and was led to Christ and baptized. He went down to Johannesburg where he learned in a church that it's not wrong to drink alcohol. In contrast to the church covenant that he had signed in his home church, when he came back to Elam, he began drinking in public. He said, well, I'm not drunk. Until he led another church member to drink in public and then committed fornication. And today he's out of the church. He made provision for the flesh. And this is what Manasseh is doing at the very beginning. His first sin is to dishonor his father. And his second sin is to make provision for the flesh. But those are actually subpoints under number one. Let's go to number two in verse three. Number two in verse three. He, he reared up altars for Baal. Now he begins idolatry. This is the second most common sin in the whole Old Testament. Idolatry, idolatry. And come back in two weeks time, Lord willing. Next week we're going to deal with Josiah. And the last week that we'll be studying this book, we're going to spend a significant time on idolatry. And I aim to show the kinds of idols that we have today. And I hope that you'll return to study that message with us. This man, his second sin is idolatry. His third sin in verse 3, he made groves, or maybe your Bible says he made asherim. Asherim were poles or trees or statues to the female goddess. They were probably the counterpart to the Baal. Do you see the Baal right above that? There's the Baalim and the Asherim. The Baal was the male and the Asherah were the female. In some cultures, they would commit acts of fornication and and acts of worship to these false and pagan gods. The pagans had many statues, but I will remind you, they thought they were worshiping Asherah or Baal, but the Bible says in Deuteronomy 32 verse 17, they were worshiping demons whom they called gods. They said, this is my God, but God says, that's not a God, that's demon. John MacArthur some time ago said, Allah is another name for Satan. What he meant by that was Deuteronomy 32 verse 17. I understand that the Hebrew word Allah 
means God in Arabic. But many Muslims have a God and they have taken the Hebrew word or the Arabic word for God, Allah, and they have taken that word and put it on a false God. And Deuteronomy 32 verse 17 says they called them God, but actually they were demons that they were worshiping. Revelation 13 verse 4 says that Satan pulled all the angels with him so that they would be worshipped. Satan does not mind if you worship demons because ultimately that worship goes right back to him at the top. Number four, the fourth sin is in verse three. He worshipped the host of heaven, the sun, moon, and stars, and he served them. Men have always been drawn toward the heavenly bodies because they are high and exalted and because they are mysterious. But I want to remind you, the sun, the moon, and the stars are not personal. They cannot create. And there are many of them. In those ways, they contradict the one true God. And that's why pagans have always tried to worship the sun, moon, and the stars. They've always done it. That's why the sign of Islam is the moon. There's a connection with the, with the, angel, um, with the um, celestial bodies. And here, Manasseh goes to worship the sun, the moon, and the stars. Sin number five is in verse number four. He built altars in the house of the Lord. Up to this point, Manasseh has been foolish and irrational. But now he's going to go beyond that, and he is going to directly attack the honor and glory of Jehovah. It is one thing for you to lie. It is another thing for you to lie to the Holy Spirit, as Ananias and Sapphira found out when they were struck dead immediately in church because they lied to the Holy Spirit. It is one thing to raise up idols. It is another thing to go into the temple of God and defile it with false gods. And that is what this man does. Men often begin their sin timidly. Young men will begin their sin by flirting with a girl, and then by saying certain words, and then by little touches, and they'll go further until they fall into the sin of fornication. Older men will have small sins, just flirting at work, just little things, just some text messages, until they fall to the real sin. Other men will just, they'll just take a little bit of money. Well, I I deserve this. I did this that no one saw me do. No one saw me do this work over here. So I deserve to be able to take a little bit of money from from the business coffers. And one after another, they move from timidity into actual sin. That's what Manasseh does. Their shameless blasphemy comes by a long pattern of sin. Manasseh is not content to worship demons. He must overtly attack Jehovah. But isn't this a picture of our own hearts? That's how we all were outside of Christ. Sin number six. Look at verse six. This is amazing. Look at verse six. What's the sin? Tell me. He burned his sons. Not one son, but many sons. If you have the King James Bible, it says children. That's incorrect. The Hebrew word is masculine. It's son, but not one son. Multiple sons. He took his best boys and murdered them because demonic worship will always pull you 
into irrational, vile, bestial kind of behavior. Like the spider who after mating devours her mate. Like the dog who attacks the puppies that he sired. This Man has almost degraded himself to become a beast when he murders his own sons. And can I remind you, look at the end of chapter 33 in verse number 21. What is the name of Manasseh's son? Ammon. What is the name of Manasseh's son? Ammon in verse 21, chapter 33, verse 21. How old is Ammon when he comes to power? Manasseh starts at 12. He rules for 55. Add 12 and 55 and you get 67. 67 minus 22 is 45. Manasseh has this son at 45. What was he doing for the 20 years before that? He had other sons, but he murdered them. That's why Ammon... The son of his middle age has to be the king because all the other sons were destroyed. Demon worship is vile and backward and dirty and sinful. It makes men into beasts. Look at sin number seven in verse six. And now in verse 6, we have four more sins. 7, 8, 9, and 10 are all listed here in verse 6. Number 1, he practiced witchcraft. Do you see that in verse 6? Sin number 7. Sin number 8 is in verse 6. He used divination. That is, he wants to find out knowledge through evil spirits. That's still happening today in Africa. When Africans will go to see Sangomas, that's still happening today. But it's happening in white and black churches when men go to churches that have, quote, a prophetic ministry. What they want is they want super knowledge. They want more knowledge than God has given in the Bible. We're memorizing this month. Hebrews 1, 1 through 3. And in Hebrews 1 it says, In the old days he spoke to the fathers through the prophets, but in the last days he spoke to us through what? Through his son. We have the word. We have the son of God. But how many people in this town say, The word? I don't want that. The son of God? I don't want that. Give me some prophet who can tell me if I'm going to get the job. Give me some prophet who will tell me what's going to happen with my daughter or my son. Is that not the same thing as, as Manasseh who says, I know I've, I've, got this, I've got this Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, but I don't want those books. Give me something else. Give me extra knowledge. That's what he searches after here. And we see it still happening today. The sins of Manasseh are not far from us. He searched for power with demons. He searched for knowledge through evil spirits. Sin number nine He practiced sorcery. Sin number eight, divination. Sin number nine, it's in verse six. He practiced sorcery. Sin number 10, he dealt with mediums and spiritists. Perhaps your Bible says wizards. He tried to contact the dead. Some people have surmised that Adolf Hitler... The ruler of Germany during World War II was demon-possessed. 
Some people have believed that Joseph Stalin, the ruler of Russia, was demon-possessed. A good case can be made for that. A case can be made that King Shaka, the first of the Zulu kings, was demon-possessed. Read the history and you explain how the man can do what he did to his own people and to the Ndebele people, two million of whom were murdered by Shaka Zulu. How can we explain these tragedies and travesties all through the world and throughout human history? Let me remind you of Ephesians 6 verse 12. We do not wrestle with flesh and blood, but with principalities and powers. And here's the word. Listen to this. The rulers of the darkness of this world. Literally in Greek, it's the world rulers of darkness. The NASB gets very close to that when it translates it. The world rulers of darkness. Who are these world rulers of darkness? Brothers and sisters, demons have always targeted political powers, kings, queens, princes to empower them and to fill them. Men who are infatuated with power are unwittingly turning to the one who has been given a little power for a little time. Do you remember what Jesus said the night that he was crucified? This is your hour and the power of darkness. 60 years later, John the Apostle wrote in 1 John chapter 5, the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. 2 Corinthians 4 verse 4 says, Satan is the God of this world and he blinds the minds of those who would believe the truth. They would believe the truth if Satan didn't blind their eyes. Oh, demons do great terror and great evil and they do some of their worst work by coming into the hearts of kings like King Herod who cut off the head of John the Baptist. And a little bit later, after he killed John the Baptist, what did he do? In fact, in Mark chapter 6, it says King Herod, when he cut off John the Baptist, was sorry. But three years later, what does he do? He cuts off the head of James, the brother of John, one of the greatest of the apostles. He would have done the same thing to Peter, but an angel let him out in Acts chapter 12. And then when he stands up, this is the same King Herod. Is he not ruled by demons? When he stands up in front and he gives a speech and the people say, it's the voice of God, not of men. And he rejoices in his own honor. And the Bible says he was eaten with worms and breathed his last. He died. Many times the world rulers are demon-possessed. Manasseh sought after demonic power. He opened himself up to be controlled by demons. Would we be surprised if he was controlled by demons? Look at verse 7. This is the 11th sin, if you're numbering these. Verse 7, he set a carved image, the idol which he had made in the house of God. Oh, Manasseh, of all your sins, this, this surpasses the murder of your own children. This surpasses putting up an altar in the house of God. You are doing your best. You are devoting yourself to dishonoring Jehovah. 
You make an idol privately. You build that idol on your own, as the book of Isaiah records. And Isaiah was alive preaching to Manasseh. He preached to Hezekiah and he lived during the life of Manasseh. And Isaiah was probably preaching to Manasseh, telling him as he does in in the book of Isaiah, men will go out and cut down a beautiful tree. And from the very best of the tree, they'll make furniture for themselves. Maybe this furniture, as you see, maybe on the piano or on the pulpit or on chairs and tables. And then from the scraps that are left over, they'll say, what do I do with the scraps that I've cut down here? Oh, I know. Let's see if I can't make a little idol. Let's see if I can't make a little statue. And when I'm done with that, making that little statue, I bow down, as Isaiah says, to the rubbish. The valuable parts of the tree you made into your piano. And then the, the little rubbish you have, you say, oh, this will be my God. And you'll bow down to it. Manasseh did something like that. And he took that foolish, built up rubbish. And he brought it into the temple and said, this is the one true God. So desecrating the temple. How could that man not be filled with a demon? Verses 7, 8, and 9 describe the temple. And in verse 9, we have sin number 12. The twelfth sin is the first sin that is not directly spiritual or religious. He misled the whole country. In verse 9, Manasseh made Judah or misled Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem. He misled them to do worse than the heathen. Sinners are not only fools, but they are cruel. It's one thing to shoot yourself. But who can explain the cruelty in the minds and hearts of a man who takes a gun into a shopping mall and shoots other people and then himself? That's what Manasseh does. He says, I'm not content to go to hell by myself. I'm going to take others with me. I'm not content to live in in fear and disgust and degradation. I'm not content to be deprived and vile. I'm not content myself to be a cesspool. I will make you live in the sewer with me. He leads the whole family. Manasseh, if you want this for yourself, you can do that on your own. But why would you take the whole country with you? Why can't you let other people have freedom of their conscience? He must have been a man with very forceful character. Because he was able to lead the entire country. And the book of Kings records it as well. All the inhabitants of Jerusalem followed after him. He misled the whole country. Other Hebrew terms for this word mislead are deceived, caused to go astray, stagger or wander. It's as if with the last remaining strength he has, he says, no, I've got to get you to come with me. I've used all my strength to defy and attack and despise God and to spit in his face. And now with whatever little time I have left, I'm going to pull others to go along with me. Exodus 23 verse 2, you shall not follow a multitude To do evil. You must not follow the masses, follow the masses in doing evil, which reminds us that the masses commonly do do evil. That's a verse against democracy. Did you hear that? Exodus 23, verse 2. 
Do not follow the masses, the 51% in doing evil. Exodus 23 verse 2. When the, when the majority of people say, let's murder our babies, you disagree with them. When the majority of people say, prosperity preachers are Christians, you must disagree with them. When the majority of people say it's okay to take grants from the government rather than working for yourself, you must disagree with them. When the majority of people say we can fear and trust the government even more than the Bible, you must disagree with them. Guard yourselves against following masses to do evil. Kings are often on the wrong side of history. They're often doing wrong throughout history. Charles II in England in 1662. It was Christians who helped get Charles II back on the throne. What happened was Charles I was the dad and his head was cut off because he would not give religious freedom to the Christians. So Christians gathered together and they cut off the head of the king. But the Christians were divided. Some Christians said, do not cut off the king's head. Other Christians said, you've got to cut off the king's head. So the Christians were divided at that time. They cut off the Charles I's head and his little son ran away into hiding. Those two groups of Christians fought back and forth. Some saying, no, no, bring back the king. We shouldn't cut his head off. So they talked to Charles II and they said, look, we don't think we should have cut off your father's head. Come back and be our king. But you've got to promise us that we can still have church on Sunday. Charles II said, yes, yes, yes. Of course you can have church. I'll forgive you if you forgive me. I'll come back and I'll be the king. You guys can have your church. As soon as Charles II came back to power, he said, tricked you. I was lying. You can't go to church. 2,000 pastors the same day, some of the greatest pastors in church history, Richard Baxter, John Bunyan, were kicked out of their churches immediately when Charles II came back to power with the help of those Christians whom he kicked out. Would you say that's a wise king or a foolish king? Are the kings any better today? We all have this disease. It's injected into our blood to think, Today we're really clever because we have smartphones. Oh, back then, 400 years ago, they were fools. They didn't know anything. I mean, they, they, didn't even know how to, they did not even know how to do a Google search. So back there 300 years ago, what, what did they know? They knew nothing. We are so clever. I'm sure Ramaphosa is filled with wisdom. I'm sure Donald Trump or Joe Biden, I'm sure this guy, Mwananga, I'm sure those guys, they're very wise. I'm so sure. No. Charles II, Charles II was a fool, and they're not any better today. Have we forgotten what the government in this country did 26 years ago? Have we forgotten that from 1964 to 1994, it was illegal for black people to live freely with white people? Was the government wise then? Oh no, the government was very foolish in the 1970s, but now in 2020... I'm sure the government's very wise when they allow us to murder our children. When the fatherless rate is much higher today than it was during apartheid. When black boys grow up without a dad much more today than before. Oh, I'm sure the government's much wiser. No, the government was bad back then and it's dangerous today. We still obey it. But we remember the lessons of history. Sin number 13, verse 10. 
Chapter 33, verse 10. And the Lord spoke to Manasseh and to his people, but they would not listen. What should happen to a man like Manasseh? He should be killed. But does God kill him? No, he sends him prophets like Isaiah. He sends him prophets like Ido the seer. He sends him prophets that you and I have never even heard of. These prophets come and preach the gospel and tell him, repent, repent. And does Manasseh listen? He rejects that. Brothers and sisters, when we reject godly preaching, we are setting ourselves up to be like Manasseh. How many men in this town will teach the Bible verse by verse for you and your wife and children? How many? How many churches in Makado Municipality will teach the Bible verse by verse? If there's 250,000 people in the greater Manakata municipality, how many of those people have access to a church where the men will stand up and say, this is what God says. And I don't fear men. I don't fear women. I don't fear demons. I don't fear anything or anyone but God. How many churches are there? There's not many. If you have found one, what are you doing before listening? You're setting yourself up to be like Manasseh. There are people in this country, in fact, some of the church members from this church just moved away in December and said, I cannot find a godly church in our area. If you are in a place that has a godly church, that's like being given gold. And when you don't join it, and when you don't support it, it's like taking gold and tossing it to the pigs. Sin, number two. 13, he refused to listen to godly men. But sin number 14 is not listed in this passage. It's in 2 Kings. Because 2 Kings 21 tells the story of this man as well. The final sin of this man is not recorded here. It's recorded in 2 Kings 21 verse 16 where it says, Manasseh filled Jerusalem with with the blood of men. That is, he was a bloody and a violent man. Did you notice that the great majority of these sins were religious? Manasseh is a very religious man. The final sin is his blood. Can you think of whom he killed? He killed his sons. Jewish tradition and Hebrew and Christian tradition tells us that he also killed the prophet Isaiah. Isaiah continued to preach. Some people said years ago when I opposed another practice and I was kicked out of a church, they said, you should have just kept your mouth closed. Those people would have said the same thing to Isaiah. Isaiah, you should have just kept your mouth closed. Because Isaiah preached, tradition and history tells us that he was put inside a log by this king Manasseh. And he was sawn in half. That's Hebrews 11 verse 37. In the hall of faith it says some of the believers in the Old Testament were sawn in half. Who are those people? Well, the Jews recorded in history, it's Manasseh. How wicked and vile do you have to be to take one of the prophets? By this time, Isaiah would have been about 70 years old. To take a 70-year-old man who's known all over the country as being holy and wise... And you say, I'll show you what I do with 70-year-old men who oppose me. I put you in a log and cut you in half. 
He was a bloody, vile man. It is difficult to describe how evil this man is, but Psalm 5 does it. Listen to these words from Psalm 5, verse 5. The Lord abhors all sinners. The Lord hates all sinners. The Lord will abhor the bloody man, the man of blood. God hates all sinners, Psalm 5, verse 5, but he abhors, there's a heightened, a special hatred for the man who is a man of blood, which is why we must guard ourselves, that we must never entertain ourselves with the blood of innocent men or women. And this becomes tricky when, when these days we have learned to entertain ourselves through movies and TV and through video games where the whole point of the movie or the story or the video game is to enjoy yourself in the blood and destruction of men or women. No, this man is a very wicked man. And now I would like to bring out two more observations. First is this. Manasseh's sin lasted more than 40 years. You see, he came to power when he was 12. His father is with him for 10 years. His father dies when he is 22 years old. Manasseh is 22 when he begins his sin. But in verse 11, everyone look at verse 11 with me. Wherefore the Lord brought upon them the captains of the host of the king of Assyria, which took Manasseh with hooks and bound him with fetters and carried him where? Why is the king of Assyria taking him to Babylon? Why wouldn't the king of Assyria take him to Assyria? Assyria and Babylon are far apart. They're two different empires. And at this time in world history, Assyria was the empire on top. Babylon was the small empire on the bottom. In about 100 years, it's going to flip. Assyria is going to be gone and Babylon will be on the top. But right now, Assyria is on the top. And this is what happened. Ashurbanipal was the king of Assyria. His elder brother was jealous of him and wanted to be the king of the empire. So his elder brother went down to Babylon and tried to stir up a revolt. He tried to get Babylon, Let's, I'm going to make you strong and you'll help me so that we can overthrow Assyria. And I'm an Assyrian, but I want to be king over the whole empire. So Ashurbanipal's brother tries to attack him. Ashurbanipal's too quick for his brother. He comes down the southwest side of Judah, cuts straight through Judah right through Israel and Judah, and comes across to Babylon and stops his brother before his brother can win the war. Then he cruelly puts down, Ashurbanipal puts down all of the power against him and says, anyone who helped those guys, I'm going to kill you. There were two kings, the king of Egypt, Necho. Second Kings tells us about this. The king of Assyria went and grabbed Necho. And took him to Babylon. And as he's passing by Egypt, he just stops for a moment in Judah and says, Manasseh, you too. You were helping the Assyrians. Because he remembers back in Hezekiah's day. There was interaction between Hezekiah and the Assyrians. No, the Assyrians. So the king of Assyria takes Necho and he takes Manasseh together to Babylon. Manasseh and Necho are terrified. They think they're about to have their heads cut off just like those other kings. They're bound with hooks. 
There's a tricky word in verse 11. It says hooks. Does your Bible say hooks or thorns in verse 11? The Hebrew word is not quite clear. It could be they, they, they persecuted him with thorns. The very old commentators believe that the Manasseh ran and hid in a thorn bush. But no commentators today would translate the Hebrew phrase that way. They all say either he was tortured with thorns poking into his body or they put hooks in his body. The reason they believe it's hooks is because they found in the Assyrian ruins a picture that was painted or carved where there is a king with a hook through his nose who's being dragged on the ground in front of the king of Assyria. Sounds like verse 11, doesn't it? He was not only in physical pain when his hands were tied, because it's not one fetter, it's two. His hands and legs were tied up. He's bound up and a hook through his nose or through some part of his flesh pulling him along. He's in great pain. He's in utter humiliation. He's been cast down at 60 or 62 years old from his position of power and authority. By the way, the Babylonian uprising happened when he would have been 60 years old or 62 years old. That's how we know that this man went for 40 years from the time he's 22 till the time he's about 62 going on in his sin. And they pull him to Babylon. And he's terrified the whole way, day after day. He's looking at the king of Nico. He's feeling that hook. He's bound up. He can't take care of himself. He has no dignity. He's laughed and mocked, kicked by the soldiers as they walk by. And this man who was once the great power of Judah, the highest in the land, is brought low. He's brought low. He's humbled. He's terrified. But for 40 years, he sinned against his father and his heritage. He had ever-increasing, never-shrinking impulses toward evil. He sinned against both God and men. Some people only sin against men. He sinned against both. He sinned against his own family. And then he dragged others into the poisonous cesspool of his own wicked idolatry. This man has... Decades. You know what you would say of him? Death is too good for him. He should be tortured before he dies. And God does bring him low. If your family had been murdered by Manasseh, what would you say? If you had lost your business, if you had been a faithful worshiper of Jehovah back when he was 25 and he killed your wife and children... And you forced to live for 40 years in misery. And you die when he's about 57 before these fetters. What would you have said about Manasseh? How would you have cried to God to deliver you from this vile and wicked politician over your head? If you were Hezekiah, what would you say that Manasseh deserved? But here's the amazing point of the whole story. I told you there's two points. Number one is his sin. Number two is his end. And that's what we've arrived at. When Manasseh was 60 years old, Ashurbanipal comes in. He's humbled. It's God who sends the pain in verse 11. I told you that whole story so that you would realize God raised up Ashurbanipal. God raised up his brother. God raised up the Babylonian insurrection. God brought Egypt. He did all of those things with all of those nations just so that he could put Manasseh in that hard place. 
God is not against moving a whole country to bring conviction to your soul. And that's what he does here. He brings the loss of freedom, the psychological humiliation, the terrors and the threats. And then verse 12. When he was afflicted, he sought the Lord. How did he humble himself in verse 12? How does he humble himself? Greatly. Verse 13, what does he do? Look at verse 13. He prays. At the very end of verse 13, what does Manasseh do? He knew the Lord. In verse 15, what does he do? He removed the strange gods. In verse 16, what does he do? He sets up the altar of the Lord. In verse 16, what's the next thing he does? He sacrifices for himself. Peace offerings and thank offerings. And then what's the next thing he does in verse 16? He commands Judah to serve the Lord. This man is converted for the last five years of his life. He's lived 62 years as a wicked, vile, dirty man, a demon in flesh. And for five years, he says, I've got to make up for what I did. Everything wrong I did, I'm changing it. I'm going to pray. I'm going to humble myself greatly. I'm going to go low. I'm going to put Jehovah up on high. I'm going to throw down the idols that I made. I'm going to teach all men in Judah to follow God. What can we say about this amazing transformation? You see, it is one thing to talk about humility. It's another thing to show it by the fruits of repentance. Many, many people will claim to be Christians. We are always asking for the fruits of repentance. Don't tell me you're a mango tree. Give me a mango. Manasseh brings the fruit. He delivers While he's in captivity, he prays, he humbles himself, he seeks God, and he knows God. And when he's returned to his city, he shouldn't have been returned. Why was he returned? He didn't deserve to be returned. And that's the whole point of the message. God loves humility. Psalm 51, verse 17 A broken and humble heart, oh God, you will not turn away. He does not turn away broken hearts. He does not turn away humble hearts. He turns away proud hearts. But if you're humble and broken over your sin, he takes you. He receives you. He helps you. He gives grace to the humble. James 4 verse 6. Why did God let him live so long? Very simply, he wanted to be able to display his grace. God allowed that vile man to ruin people's lives. And there may be people ruining your life right now. And God is allowing it. Because if he doesn't allow their sin to go on, his grace will not ultimately be seen the way it should be seen. And I ask you, brothers and sisters, have you ever seen a man like this converted? Do you even believe that he can save a man like this? This is not just a drunk. This is a demon-possessed tyrant. Do you believe that God can save a man who's so vile he murders Christians? 
Do you believe that God can save a man that devotes himself to a false religion? Isn't that the Apostle Paul? Isn't that you? Didn't you sin against greater light? You see, did Manasseh have the New Testament? Had Manasseh ever read the book of Galatians? Did Manasseh have the Bible? I was evangelizing someone yesterday and I asked, are you a Christian? They said, yes, I'm a Christian. Great. Have you ever read the Bible? No. You call yourself a Christian, but you haven't read the Bible. You see, Manasseh didn't have the Bible. We've got it and we don't read it. Are we not worse than Manasseh? There is a godly church. People will come to your house. I will pick you up for free and drive you to church. Mm. Ah, maybe. Ah, maybe. Maybe I'll be busy. I'll call. Is this not a greater sin than Manasseh? Complete apathy before God. At least Manasseh cared enough to realize Jehovah is a great thing. I'm going to attack him. Today, we don't even think anything of Jehovah. Only that I want to sing and dance. Because, oh, we Africans, we love to sing and dance. Dancing's fun for us. We used to do it hundreds of years ago. Now we do it, we just sing Lion of Judah while we do it. But when it comes to real repentance, the fruits of repentance, true humility, and commitment to the Bible, where's that? My brothers and sisters, Manasseh is here as an example of grace. If you could talk to Manasseh today, what would he say? He would say, I could have lived my entire life 40 different times since I have now been in heaven. I could have lived those 67 years 40 times from the time he lived until now. And I should not be in heaven. That's what Manasseh would say if you could see him right now. He is near the throne of grace, speaking with Jesus. And he would say, oh, I've been here so long. My life on earth was just a dot. It was 67 years. I was king for 55 from my life here. Manasseh might say, who is, who, is, who is as bad as me? Not Cain, not Esau, not even Ahab. Manasseh might say, Simon the sorcerer didn't do what I did. Paul the apostle didn't do what I did. He did it for a few years. I did it for 50. He could have said, I'm the one. I'm the one even though I had eyes that would not see. I'm the one even though I gave myself to sin. I'm the one here now with Isaiah right beside me even though I cut him in half. I'm the here with my young boys that I murdered. And maybe Manasseh would say, I am here with the Son of God made flesh. And I cannot even cry because even though the impulse of revulsion and sorrow and regret, sometimes, sometimes I feel it in me, then I'm in heaven where all tears are wiped away and my tears are turned to joy because of grace, grace, grace. It's God's kindness to a man who's so vile. Read the history of the world. It's filled with wicked men. Read your own heart. You're a lot worse than you think. But grace comes to those who are humble. So I say to you, do not forget the wonder of grace. How much, how often have you thought about what God did in saving you? I wonder, have you ever been saved like Manasseh was saved?
close our eyes.